0: 18. But I stayed Well, hello, Mountain. It's good to see everybody. Welcome on this cheery, lovely, warm, amazing weekend. I know we got some guests who are here. I got to meet some on the way in. Super glad you're here. You're coming at a really interesting and important time at Mountain. Uh, We're doing a series called If These Stones Could Speak. And it's a chance for us to kind of go back through the Bible and think about all the times stones show up in significant and powerful ways. And if those stones could speak, what story would they say to you? Because they're still speaking. And so we're doing that. So as we're listening, we're not just saying, what are they saying to you? But what are they saying to us, you know, as a church? We're not just a sort of massive gathering of individuals. God's calling us as a church to be and to do some stuff for him that we none of us can do on our own. And so that's why we're revisiting it. at the one-year mark this initiative that we've been in called Unleash Love. Uh, and I just hope that you're able to uh, let God uh, make that personal for you how God is calling you to unleash love so that you could just say, God, I, we want your love to flood into our lives, not just to come to us, but so that it could flow through us. And I pray that you're asking God those questions as we look at some of these stones in our church and in our lives and from the Bible. We started by uh, following the children of Israel through the wilderness, and they got up to the edge of the Jordan River, remember? The Jordan River was foaming at flood stage, and they couldn't get to the promised land. There's always a river between where you are now and... where God wants you to be. And what does God say? Step into the river. I want you to go first. Step into the river. Remember this? And uh, he wants us to know, he, he wants us to know that he needs us to trust him. And so that's what they did. They put their foot in the raging river. It parted, and they walked through on dry ground. They got to the other side. They were so amazed at what God did. Sometimes God does something so amazing in your life, you don't want to forget it. And so they grabbed a pile of stones, 12 of them, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, maybe a little bit larger than these, and stacked them up there. And when your kids ask you, hey, what's that pile of rocks for? You say, oh, those stones still speak. They tell the story of God's faithfulness in our lives. And then last week, Luke took us to the edge of uh, the temple where the religious officials had hauled a disgraced woman out from the act of adultery and thrown her in the dirt in front of everybody and said, Jesus, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And that's when Jesus, as he surveyed those those men there with their hands clenched on those stones of accusation and condemnation and shame, said the words, Anyone who's without sin should be the first to cast a stone. And one by one, those stones dropped, and they walked away. And then Jesus said words to them, which are also words for us. I'm not here to condemn you either. Go and leave your life of sin. The stones still speak powerfully. And today we come to a different stone with a different message. Chris Travis is a friend who um, took a teaching position. His first year of teaching was in a public school in New York that was one of the absolute worst in the school system, one of the worst in the country. It was one of the most dangerous middle schools in all of New York City. There are 1,500 schools, 1.1 million kids in the largest school system in the world in New York City, and his first year teaching was at the school with the highest rate of injuries per capita. (laughs) That's a bad sign. That's a bad stat right there. The place was a mess. A New York Post article talks about that school. It calls it the school from hell. Teachers were harassed and cursed and sometimes groped, could never get attention from the kids. The place was filthy mess and littering and books and supplies flying out the broken windows all the time. Uh, teachers were threatened and sworn at, despised and stolen from, and the administration wasn't much help. Chris found himself sliding into a deep depression. He says, I would get out of the morning, out of the bed in the morning, and I didn't want to go to work at all. I just felt this big malevolent spirit pressing down on me. He says, I began to figure out why. As he thought about this, he says, I realized I was seeing the slow death of my significance. The slow death of my significance. He left a position where people listened to him, they respected what he had to say. When he spoke, it mattered. He was making good coin. It it was something that. You know, he felt important at. He was the kind of kid who got 4.0 GPA, top of his class, valedictorian. And now here he was in this place where he was growing to hate these kids, embarrassed that he hated them. He knew they despised him. He was a failure. Kids weren't getting educated. He knew it. They knew it. There was no power. There was no money. There was no fame. There was no future. There was no, nothing to it the way he was looking at it. Are you significant? Are you successful? Are you important? Are you strong? Do you matter? You know, I think sometimes one of the reasons we need to get together on the weekends and open God's word and humble ourselves before it is to remind ourselves to get our our heads screwed on straight about some of the most important matters in life, about where our real significance actually comes from. About what in life will make us successful. And whether it's the same as the world talks about sometimes. Because our value systems and our ideas of strength and power sometimes get a little screwed up. And for Chris, what happened is he gutted it out. He didn't want to, but he felt God was calling him to stick it out. And he went back for a second year in that awful situation. And it was there with his... Outer comforts stripped, and his feeling like a weak, failing, insignificant nobody. In that desperate place, he finally found the need to invite God into his life and into his teaching in a way he hadn't before. And he said, It changed everything. And God showed up, and it was the most significant experience of his life that second <laughs> year of teaching. And that's how it often works. For him, it was a math teacher. He saw the attitudes of the kids change. He saw his attitude change. And if the walls of that third-story classroom in Harlem could speak, they would tell stories about kids who are different today, not just because they know math, but because of what Chris brought there, because he humbled himself and realized, in my weakness, I am strong through Christ. In our weakest moments, God shows up. That's where our significance lies in life. We are only significant not when we're trying to prop ourselves up with what the world says we need to be powerful, successful, and well thought of. But when we realize in our weakness and desperate state, we finally invite God into that space and realize in my weakness, God, you do what you want to do for your name and I'll do whatever I can do. Here's what I'm going to challenge you today. Do something for God's sake. For God's sake, don't do it for your. Do something for God's sake, for His mission, His will, His way. Unleash love somehow, and then just do what you can do. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Do what you know how to do, the thing that is yours to do, and then watch what God will do. Do something for God's sake. Do what you can do, and watch what God does, and. Things aren't always what they seem because God has a way then when we come to him with that as a way. God just loves to show up in the most unlikely places and the most insignificant people and circumstances, doesn't he? Isn't it amazing how this works? Open your Bible if you've got one, or Bible app, or whatever you got these days. Let's let's look a little bit at 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Saul is the king of Israel. This is Old Testament time, right? Saul's got some problems. One, he's losing his brains. He's losing his mind. He's he's kind of a, I don't know what's happening with him. He's, he's, he's He's up and down all over the place. His bigger problem is that David's been anointed as king, but he's like, nope, I'm still king. And so there's a little tension there. And his biggest problem is the Philistines. Everybody say Philistines. Philistines were nasty, war-mongering enemies of the Israelites, and all through the Old Testament, you see them fighting each other. And the Israelites are never a very good match against the Philistines, because the Philistines are known for their innovative use of iron and sophisticated armaments, way ahead of where the Israelites are. They, in fact, uh, they were so far advanced in their work with iron that the Bible tells in other places how the Israelites would have to go to the uh, Philistines just to get their farm implements sharpened, because they didn't have the technology to do it. They didn't have the weaponry. They were no match. And so as chapter 17 opens, what we find is that the the storms of war are gathering, and you've got a Philistine army that is assembled battle-ready on a hill over here and a valley between another hill, and here comes Israel. They have to come out to meet them. And so they gather up their fighting best, and here they are. And now we're, we're coming to where we're about to see a bloody hand-to-hand combat. If you've ever seen a scene from the, the film Gettysburg, you're, you're about to anticipate what's going to go down here. It wasn't uncommon, archaeologists say, for 30, 40, 50,000 lives to be lost in a battle like that. And then verse 4. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. A champion named Goliath... From Gath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Goliath. Everybody say, Goliath. Even the name sounds imposing, doesn't it? I mean, it's like if the, if it's like, and then a guy named Tyler came out, it's like, no, nobody's scared of Tyler. I'm sorry. <laughs> Chad showed up and everyone was really scared. So no, no, I'm sorry. No, Ben from Bel Air is not awesome, all right? Fred from Falston showed up. No, no, listen. Goliath. This is like an announcer can do something with this name, like in a wrestling match. Goliath of Gath. You can just see him. And the most important thing about him, the first thing said about him is what? How big he is. Goliath of Gath. And he's huge. Seven foot, nine foot tall, something like that. I remember that Guinness Book of World Records book we always just look at. There's a guy, Robert Wadlow, tallest man ever to live, 8 foot 11 inches, tall dude. In fact, they said that his hands are 12 inches long, which is a little confusing because it means each hand is a foot. So I don't know how that works, but... Anyway, but he doesn't look very fierce, really, does he? he? He doesn't look like a mean old Goliath, so maybe we need to think of someone more like Andre the Giant. You know, some of you remember that from Princess Bride, right? Uh, he's a gentle giant and uh, uh, so forth, but he would be hard to fight. Here's a picture of someone, if you were going to go fight uh, Andre the Giant, it wouldn't be very much fun at all. And so here's the description of Goliath of Gath. Who comes out, and all of a sudden, this is just not a day that's shaping up to look very good for the Israelites. Now, the Bible here goes into some a remarkable detail, helping us sort of scan and size this guy up. In fact, if you look at chapter 17, verses 5 to 7, it pictures now Goliath. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to kind of just help us really get a feel for how big of a dude and fierce he was. I, uh, Zach, are you here? Come on up, Zach. I asked Zach to come and help me. Give a big round of applause for my buddy, Zach. Come on, buddy. Go to chapter 5, 17, verse 5. What's up, buddy? You're going to be my Goliath. Is that cool? All right. Stand right here. Do what I tell you. All right. Um, It's uh, everybody. What does it say first? He had a what? Bronze helmet. I happen to have one of those. Uh, It's not bronze, but it'll do. Put that on, buddy. All right. What else did he have? He had a coat of scale armor, like mail, okay, of bronze, and it weighed 5,000 shekels. Guess what? I did the math. That's 125 pounds. Guy's wearing 125 pounds. How's your back? Don't. Nope. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> is your back okay, seriously? It's Okay. Uh, it won't be in a minute here. Come on. All right. This, this pack only weighs about 90 pounds, all right? Okay. I just need you to put that on because this is what a mail thing is like. Oh, oh. Do you sign a waiver or anything? Okay. <laughs> all right, so yeah. Okay, what's next? Uh on his legs he wore bronze greaves. I don't know, I couldn't find my bronze greaves at home. Uh I don't know where my wife put them. So, uh this will have to do, but we don't have time for you to put those on. But hold those up. All right, here we go. There you go. And uh and also a bronze javelin was slung on his back. Uh, that's all I got here, bud. Okay. All right. And uh, is there another verse? Yeah, his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. That's big, in other words. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's another 15 pounds. need you to hold on to this, baby. right That's the tip of your spear. Get ready to throw that. And his shield bearer went ahead of him. Okay, here you go. This is Goliath. Actually, I wouldn't mind fighting you right now.
1: Yeah, I'd say you. If you've
0: got to carry all that, I'd probably have a pretty good chance. All right, so here's the deal. Can you see what the Bible's doing? It's slowing down the narrative so that it lists all of these details for a reason. So that our eyes are forced to look at every inch of him from head to toe and be scared and impressed. And because the way he's described, he's the ultimate man of bronze and steel. He's like a robot. He's like a transformer. He's impenetrable. He's a walking uh, uh, fortress. There's no way you can win against a guy like this, even though if you can stretch your imagination from a guy like this to the real Goliath. Let's give a round of applause, my buddy here. Thank you very much. Let me help you with this. All right, one, two, three. I am not Goliath. All right. You get the idea. And so this is Goliath. Thanks, Zach, appreciate it. Leave the helmet. (laughs) And so this is the guy then who steps down into this valley, and archaeologists remind us that because of the thin desert air and the stony situation in the valley there, you could hear voices for almost a mile, and he begins to bellow a proposition. He says, here's the deal. We're going to go mano a mano. You send a champion. I'll represent the Philistines. We'll go one-on-one to the death, and whoever wins, that'll settle it. If I win, you will become our subjects, and if the other guy, your guy wins, we'll become yours. It's kind of an interesting representative model. It's going to avoid a lot of bloodshed. And then he begins to defy the God of Israel. He begins to talk a lot of smack and threaten them and say, send someone down. And verse 11 says that on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, the king, and all the Israelites were terrified and deeply shaken. And this threat and this challenge and this smack talk against God and defying Yahweh goes on every single day for over a month, the Bible says. Every day, Goliath would come down and taunt and face off and talk about, come on, you, you people who serve God, send one of your stupid weaklings out here and I'm going to kill him right now. And they'd all run away. The Bible takes us over to remind us about a guy named Jesse for a moment. Jesse uh, was a, a farmer of sorts who had eight sons. We met them earlier and uh, the three oldest, bravest, strongest are off fighting in the war. Jesse uh, calls in little no-count David. He was the youngest son that nobody respected. He just sent him out to take care of the sheep. He calls him in and says, okay, shepherd boy, listen, I can't get a hold of my sons on FaceTime. I need to send a care package. Load up. I want you to go out there and tell me how they're doing. So David does just that, all of his stuff, and he heads off and he heads to the battlefront. He gets there just as Goliath is coming down and talking trash of the Lord God and taunting all of the people, and David can't Stand it. Verse 26 David asked the soldiers standing nearby, What will a man get for killing this Philistine and his defiance, ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine, anyway, that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And you see, for the first time, someone is taking their eyes off the giant and looking at God. They all had their eyes on the giant and they were listening. To the taunts. But David has his eyes on God. He doesn't care how big the giant is. He knows how big God is. Interestingly, his brothers aren't happy to see him. And I don't think it's because of the food he brought. Verse 28, when David's older brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the man, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just came out to see a battle. Typical brother's going at it. He's trying to shame his brother. You just have a few sheep. Why don't you go do that? We'll fight the men. And David's like, well, what have I done? I'm only asking a question. It's like typical brother's fighting. And then David goes straight to Saul, and here's what he says in verse 32. He says, don't worry about that Philistine. I'll go fight him. Saul's response is probably what you and I would say. Verse 33, he says, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and win. You're only a boy. He's been a man of war since his youth. Don't you love that? He's been a man since he was a boy. That's when David points to the reason that he's confident. He points to the reason for his strength, the reason that he's not afraid to go before a giant and step into that valley. And it's not because he's been secretly training with Mr. Miyagi and now he's a black belt. It's not because he has a revolver in his boot. It's not because he has a super secret power that nobody knows about. Here's why. It's because this little insignificant boy is confident because he's trusted God before and God came through. He says, you know what? I was out there. I was was watching sheep. I know that's all I was doing. But lions and bears used to come all the time. You know what I did? I didn't run the other way. I went after him, and I grabbed him by the hair, and I beat him over the head. I got the sheep back, and I killed those things. And then he says in verse 37, the Lord. He talks about the Lord. He's not talking about the lion or the bear or the giant. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. God's sake, God's name, God's will is at stake here, and he's going to do something for God's sake. And Saul He's either desperate or dumb or discerning. We don't know which, but he says, whatever, go for it. But first Saul tries to dress him up in armor to look like Saul or Goliath because that's what he thinks is significant. That's where success will be found. David peels it all off and says, I can't go like this. No, I'm not going into this battle. Banking on the strength and the way that the world defines it. Instead, verse 40, he picked up five smooth stones. There's our stones. Got them out of the stream, and he put them into a shepherd's bag. And then armed with only a shepherd's staff, a little stick, and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Sometimes we think David had a slingshot. It wasn't a slingshot. It was a sling. It was a picture of what it would have looked like in that period, just a leather strap with a pouch in the middle, But it was not a child's toy. This thing was lethal. And from archaeology and historical studies... We know that there were lots of people who were very, very good at it. the Benjaminites could sling that thing left handed and they could come within a hair 's breadth of a target, even a long distance away here 's how you 'd throw it underhand like winging around a couple of times and off it would come, think like fast pitch softball underhand like zing coming out of there we 've excavated thousands of these things. You can see these little things often about the size of a billiard ball here 's a picture of some real ones we 've dug up. Um, they could be as small they could be as small as uh, as a um, golf ball, all the way up to about the size of a tennis ball, as you can see there. Um, they made them round so they would fly straighter. Um, they could throw farther than an archer could shoot with an arrow. So he had an advantage over someone with a bow and arrow, actually. And more accurate as well, sometimes over 400 yards. And when they came out of the sling, they are moving about 60 miles an hour, which means if this thing hits you, it's going to hurt you. If it hits you in the right place, it's going to do a lot of damage. And David has his hand in his pouch on that, one of those stones, as he's heading down into the valley to face a giant, and that stone's about to make a statement. When Goliath sees David, he sneers in disgust, and he just laughs, because he's the significant, strong, important, powerful, big one, remember? Remember? Verse 43, am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give you your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. In verse 45, David says, no, no. You come to me with sword and spear and javelin and all that stuff you think makes you so strong. You think that intimidates me? All that big, powerful, fearsome, prepared, significant stuff you're playing right now, he says. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then that insignificant no-count shepherd boy reaches in his pouch and clutching onto that golf ball-sized stone, he says words that every person of faith, I hope you know how to say when you're facing your giant... And if you know these words, you can say them with confidence, not in your own strength, but in God. Because he says, today the Lord is going to conquer you. I'm not going to do it. The Lord's going to conquer you. Now I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. It's about God. It's not about David. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear, not by might, not by power, not by all the things that you think is significant and strong, because he's just going to use little old me right here, right now. And and I'm going to be the one who's going to set all these people free, because this battle doesn't belong to you, Goliath, and it doesn't belong to me. This battle belongs to the Lord. When you do something for God's sake, you don't lose. If you're doing something for your sake, good luck. You're on your own. But you do something for God's sake, his will, his mission. You engage in what he cares about. You step into that battle, you won't lose. You won't lose. And some of them, someone here is fighting a battle right now. Maybe it's you. You're facing some kind of giant, that you feel, and you feel intimidated and outsized, and it's over your, way over your head. You're discouraged about it. Someone just needs to say, I need to stop trying to match my wits, my strength, my power, my significance to this and recognize that the only strength we have in life ultimately is the Lord's strength. That strength pervades even after we die. And it comes to us even in our weakness, especially in our weakness. Battle belongs to the Lord. So, if you can picture that little boy and that big giant, and you think about the world and the problems we're facing, you think about the systemic issues we have before us as a country, as a people of God, in your own life, the giants that we face that scare us and intimidate us. And you think about that little stone that David's about to reach for, that stone speaks. I think if it could speak, it would say, do something for God's sake. Something that matters to God, his kingdom, his purposes, his will. Unleash love in ways that matter to him. And then do what you can do. Don't worry about what everyone else is going to do. You just reach for the stone he's put in your pouch. And then watch what God will do. Watch what God will do. And that's what happened. That little no count boy, that farm kid, that shepherd guy smelled like sheep dung. No brothers didn't care for him, his dad didn't want him. He's small, he's weak, he's insignificant. But he realized that the opposition was an opportunity for God to show through his strength. And so when you say, I'm outgunned, I'm outmanned, I'm outnumbered, I'm outplanned. Got to make an all-out stand because they got to have a right-hand man. and His name is the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. Verse 49, he hurled it with his sling, and guess what? You saw this coming, but Philistine didn't. Hit him in the forehead, and it sank in, and Goliath tumbled and fell face down in the dirt. And that little stone, if he could speak at that moment, might say, huh, what do you know? Who's significant now? God loves to show up in the most unlikely places. To the most insignificant people, ordinary, small, weak, like you and me. People who are willing to say, I'm going to do something for God's sake. I'm going to do what I can do. And I'm going to watch what God does as a result. And this is, isn't this the way of Jesus when you think about it? I mean, Jesus, even 700 years before he came to earth, Isaiah introduces us to us. To us how does he do that he says well Isaiah 53 says you know what is nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance you'd look at him you wouldn't think he's just a boy you know there's nothing he was despised and rejected he carried about weakness there's nothing attractive about him particularly comes as a tiny baby weak grows up an ordinary carpenter in a no-count town then he dies on a cross but a cross Paul reminds us in first Corinthians 1 a cross that when you look at it goes oh that's foolish that's weak that's small not significant there But we know it to be the power of God. That's where the power of God is. In weakness, his power is displayed. So the Apostle Paul says later, Boy, I can experience this because I've got this big problem and I can't make it go away. I can't fix it. I, 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 he called it his thorn in the flesh. And I begged God, Make it stop. Make it go away. Help it quit hurting. I don't want this anymore. This is, the, I hate this weakness. I hate feeling insignificant. I hate this. God, change it. God didn't change it. He says, I'm going to give you grace to get through it. And then, God said in 2 Corinthians 12, my power works best in weakness. When I am weak, that's when I am strong. And that's true, friends. Whether you're Chris Travis on a third-story tenement building they call a school in New York City, or over at the epicenter, You know, at the Epicenter, we started this thing in 2013, so let's do a community center that'll change the trajectory of kids. Let's do something that'll change the story. And man, it's crazy. You know about Camp Epic? You know, we've had had like 600 kids come over the last four years to Camp Epic. Amazing experience that's changing their lives. 35 leaders in training. Got some pictures of these crazy kids over there. Middle school, after school program right there has grown this year by 21 kids. Isaiah is one of my buddies over there. He's, um, he's a kid from his family. He started showing up through Mountain Hoops program. Now he's a leader in Mountain Hoops. Now he's a leader in training. For, and he's helping all over. He serves a production at the Edgewood campus. He goes to CIY, and, and he's introducing his friends to Collide, and he's involved in his school. He's going to these conferences. He wants to be a church planner. He wants to go plant a church someday. Over at the epicenter, this kind of stuff's happening. 7,000 pounds of food they gave away last month, 139 families in need, blood, you know, free blood pressure treatments, chiropractic treatments, haircuts, 150 haircuts, 150 lunches, backpacks, 1,000 diapers going out, counseling appointments, all this stuff. We're just doing, we're trying to do something for God's sake. God cares about that stuff. Just a little thing. We can't do everything, but we're doing the one little thing we can do. And God's doing something with it. What about you? What about you? Right now in your life, are you unleashing love like that? That's what it means to unleash love. That's what it means. Jesus called together a ragtag bunch of ragamuffin disciples, fishermen, and tax collectors, and said, follow me, the most unlikely group of little rough-cut stones you ever did see, and that group's still growing today. And 195 years ago, some of them came to this region, and they said, we need to start a church right here. It's called Mountain Christian Church today. And you're part of that band of unschooled ruffians. Some of you look a little rougher than others. But you know what? It's It's just the same old thing that Jesus' people have always done. Even though it looks unlikely and the giant looks big and scary, we know the foolishness of the cross and where the real power is. I can do all things through Christ. He strengthens me. As you think about your story and what God's calling you to do, I invite you to watch the screen and hear about some friends at Mountain, Bill and Katie, and let them tell you about what God is doing in their life. Go ahead and watch the screen.
1: My name is Bill. This is my wife, Katie. Uh, We have two daughters, uh, Josie and Haley, and we have been going to Mountain for about six years and uh, the Bel Air campus for about the past year.
2: When we first started dating, we didn't belong to a church. We had never gone to a church together. And the year that we were getting married, my mom invited us to come to Mountain. So we did, we got married and we came sporadically. And then after about a year or two of attending, we were baptized.
1: We uh, enjoy being able to serve at Mountain, was going to the Mountain Road campus prior to October uh, serving as lead usher and helping out any way that I could there.
2: So we started going to the Bel Air campus when we were at John Carroll and when the launch happened at the Arena Club we decided to um, go all in there and uh, serve our community in Bel Air. I think that as God was preparing our lives for our move to Bel Air, he was also preparing our neighborhood and our neighbors to be open to him. I've started with a couple other girls in our neighborhood, a small group that meets on Wednesday nights. And it started out just the three of us and then we said, how can we honor God in this and bless our neighborhood? And we decided to send the invitation out to everyone all the women in our neighborhood. We were overwhelmed with the response that it got. So we got 15 women in our neighborhood decided that they were going to come into our house on Wednesday nights. Most of them have never been to church before or it's been a very long time. It's just been the most amazing experience. So we went through the summer with a series and at the end of the summer we threw it out there and we said we want to continue. Does anyone else want to continue? And we decided to re throw it out to all of our neighbors again, and we got a response of 19 women back, and so much of response that we have to make. We made two small groups. I mean, we do them at 10:30. We did them at 10:30 in the morning on Wednesdays and 8 p.m. at night. Um, we just said, "How can we make room? God's making this happen. We just have to make the room."
1: One way that I look forward to uh, unleashing love is uh, helping my wife. Um, with her small groups, um, being able to make sure dinner is ready or taking care of the kids or cleaning up the house, you know, there will be times where she will come home a little late from work and the small group is in an hour and it's dinner time, it's bath time, uh, that's just, it's very fulfilling to me as well to be able to do my part to help her and help her neighborhood as well. I'm excited for the future of what Mountain is going to be able to do out there in communities that have not been uh, reached yet. Also very excited for our girls being able to grow up uh, in the Mountain community, having friends as well, and just looking forward to uh, everything else that God has in store for us.
2: I feel like we prayed even little prayers of how God could use our lives to unleash love. And he has blown us away in big ways of what plans he has for us. And so my encouragement to others would just be to start with a prayer and be prepared to be blown away with what God plans to do with your life if you just say yes.
0: Love that. I love what she says there. Just begin with prayer, and begin prepare to be blown away by what happens when you say yes. And uh, I love that a lot, friends. That's that is what significance is. Whatever anyone else in the world says is significant or successful or strong or powerful or beautiful or all of that, friends, that's significant. Listen, I know we face some giants. I know you have some personal battles before you. They're real, they're big. Our community needs the love and light of Jesus Christ so desperately, and it's, it's huge. It's huge, but the battle belongs to the Lord, and what he asks is not for us to do anything other than to do something with our one life he's given us for his sake, his will, his mission. Unleash love. And to do what you can do and are given to do. You saw what Katie and Bill are doing. What are you going to do? And then watch what God can do when you say yes to that. That's really what Unleashed Love is all about. And if you haven't got one of these packets, I, I hope you do, because it tells a beautiful story. One, we can step back and say, man, awesome, look what God's done. But also it reminds us of the future challenges before us, not just as a church, but you individually. In a couple of weeks, we're going to encourage everyone to come back and be ready to sort of say what David said to that giant. Go right up to it, even though it looks bigger than us, just to go right up to it and say, you know what? I'm not afraid of you because we're going to do something for God's sake and watch the giants fall. Unleash love. That's what these stones would speak to us if they could. Be ready for that in a couple weeks. I hope you'll prayerfully take that seriously and be ready. For those moments as we kind of say, here's how I'm going to pray. Here's how I'm going to serve. Here's how I'm going to give. Here's how I'm going to care. Here's how I'm going to unleash love through this place. It's called Mountain. Can I just point out one more thing before we close? What I love about the deal there in the valley that day with the battle is that it was rigged. It was a setup. It was like, it was like a representative model thing that was going on. Goliath came up with the idea, hey, let's fight mano a mano. Think about it. The Israelites won that day, and they never lifted a finger. They won. They never had to do a thing because their champion stepped in on their behalf and fought the battle. David, the anointed one, stepped in. And you see, this is what God has done in Christ. He has given us this one who was born in the city of David, a son of David, from the shoot and tribe of Jesse, a new and better David. His name is Jesus Christ who has stepped into the battle, who went to the King of Kings and said, I will go fight the giant that we can't win against, death and sin itself. And he went down there. It cost him his life, but he came out victorious. And you never had to lift a finger because you would have lost if you tried to fight that battle on your own. Thank God for Jesus Christ who invites us into his family. And I pray that if you don't know that love and that Savior, you will receive him today. Let me pray for you. God, we're so thankful for Jesus, our new and better David, that you would send him down into the valley to fight on our behalf, to take upon himself our wounds so that we can find our strength, even in our weakness. We pray as you help us now, Lord, to hear the stones speaking from the past, to call us to faithfulness today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...